0: This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. So um, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, My name is Chris Wildeman, and this is Doing Translational Research. Uh, My guest today is Loss Anderson. He especially likes it when you call him Lars, with a, the <laughs> longest R possible. Um, so if you meet him, make sure you do that. Um, he's a senior researcher at the Rockwell Foundation Research Unit in Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, and he's, I mean, I know what his research interests are, but I guess the thing I'll say is he's sort of one of the up-and-coming quantitative criminologists in the field. He's done great work on criminal activity, Um criminal justice contact families. Um, and the only good papers I think probably that I write on the criminal justice system are with him these days. So loss is great. You'll all enjoy this. Um, so folks might not know what the Rockwell foundation research unit is. Um, so can you just like, what are the, what are the three keywords or what's the 92nd kind of explanation for the place that employs you?
1: So the Rockwell Foundation essentially uh, aims at providing high quality knowledge to um, make the decision base easier or better for policymakers and for decision makers in general. So Rockwell International is the world's biggest um, building installation company. And so in Denmark for taxation rules, they cannot do research within their own area uh, or it would cost them some tax advantages. So they decided um, to channel a bunch of their uh, money into social science research, which we're benefiting, benefiting, benefiting from. And um, you know, this being the translational center and all, I think it makes sense to talk about this kind of stuff, because what they really want is to make, to get knowledge out there and work in, in, uh, in society for them and for society, sort of as a payback um, for all of the taxes they're not paying, essentially.
0: Great. Best insulation in the world.
1: Yes. Exactly.
0: Good for insulation and for social problems. Uh-huh. I feel like that's like a double. It's like a double win. I should say for those of you who have not looked over my CV, I do have a part-time job at the Rockwell Foundation Research Unit, <laughs> so I may be slightly biased in my assessment. Um, so, so last, can you? Uh, thanks for explaining that. Can you? Can you just tell us a little bit about sort of, kind of your your, core kind of research questions you try to answer? Or what are the things that you're most um, sort of interested
1: in? Uh-huh. Yes, yeah. so um, my main ambition or my main research interest is, is basically to use very good data to answer some of the questions that are important to sociologists and demographers and, and especially to criminologists. Um, like some of the questions that we have a hard time answering with, with less good data but also some of the questions where we think we know the answer but where that answer might be based on research designs and data sources that are not ideal Um, i am in the very fortunate position to have access to danish register data which is sort of a um, as you know by now chris uh, it it, it's just a humongous uh, and very very uh, well defined and very fine-grained data source to to work with uh, which which to me also sort of requires you to do, um, like to to dig into these sort of important questions um, and just relying on data that no one else actually has has, has access to. That's great. Um, Yeah. So one, I mean, I
0: guess, so I usually ask folks like more generally about their engagement with community partners, community organizations, but um, today I'm going to be much more focused Mm because I think there's a really specific part of what you do that's interesting. And so one thing I'd love to hear you talk about a bit is how sort of um, wardens, professionals in the correctional justice setting, um, so parole officers, probation officers, um, how those folks sort of influence your work and engage with it, maybe even how they comment on it. And then also thinking sort of on the other side, kind of how Policy makers have responded to some of the things because I think my impression is that those um, those discussions happen more freely in Denmark than they do in the States and so I think folks would be really interested to hear about that. Yeah,
1: sure, and I'm I'm glad you bring it up because this is sort of actually one of the core interest areas of the foundation that I'm employed at. So we sort of address this issue from two different directions. One is um, dissemination of knowledge, which is something that we take very seriously and which we want to, uh, as I said before, reach as far out into the communities as possible with the knowledge that we produce. so that means politicians, uh, media, uh, but any kind of stakeholder really. And as you mentioned, the uh, the prison and probation service, for example, a lot of folks there that we um, talk to about research. And you know, we we simply invite ourselves to come and uh, and share our knowledge with these uh, with these folks. Um, so that's sort of the ones we have done the research and and want to communicate it out to people. But um, we also um, focus a lot. At sort of at the at the front end of the research and trying to to move out and collaborate with people in these positions that are um, that sort of know what's going on uh, out there uh, to inform the way that we do our um, our research. And now now you, you bring up the probation and parole offices as one example of that, and I think that's a very good example actually because. Um, so one of the things about the great Danish ready data that I that I talked about before is that we need to remember that they are still data it's still um, it's still information that is being gathered and recorded and uh, sorted and all those sorts of things so there's a long process that sort of surrounds those data and now um, I see it as a core task to fully understand all the details of that Process that generates the data you have in order to fully understand how you should approach it in your analysis, and so with the probation and parole officers we had the challenge that we wanted to um, evaluate. So, how much does it matter whether you get one or the other uh, probation officer for sort of your uh, future labor market outcomes, life chances more broadly? And here, um, uh, here. That, so, this is something that dates back to like I think glazer's famous book about this subject is from '69, and we really haven't had sort of an answer to that question up until now um, but so figuring out how to do this figuring out how to go about with this um, required quite a bit of time to be spent with probation officers to figure out what was going on out there because you have the challenge that so probationers are assigned to officers based on where they live and so because of all the residential segregation that's going on uh, that really means that you can, it's, it's very hard to measure the effect of getting one or the other officer and so So what I did was um, I literally bought cake um, and then I went to see uh, some of the folks at one of the uh, probation offices, and I just uh, uh, spoke to them for like four hours. I was allowed to sit with them and just uh, chat about, okay, so what happens when um, a new probationer, like a new case enters the system? What happens when that person enters through the door? Who decides which officer this person is assigned to? So all of these tiny details that, I think it's safe to say that the probation officers were a little annoyed with me asking all my questions, but at the end, actually, it turned out to become a a very good research design, because it turned out that in one specific um, location, so in central Copenhagen, there were so many probationers and so many um, probation officers that they needed sort of a system for assigning cases to officers. And so what they do is they follow a rotational Assignment procedure, and that's brilliant for research. No one knew. So, so the, the the people employed there obviously knew, but no one in sort of sort of outside the broader uh, that that particular system knew that this was how it was done in that particular office. So, what we do in that paper, you and Igris, mm. is to to uh, to take advantage of that rotational assignment procedure to actually measure the the causal effect of uh, whether. Probationers get assigned to one of the other officers. And we find some pretty uh, interesting results, I think.
0: We were much younger then.
1: We were much younger then.
0: Um, it did. I missed some of that because I was thinking about Danish cake and how I <laughs> eat like five pieces of cake a day when I'm in Denmark. Yeah, that's true. We, so we're I'm keen glad, on cake. I'm glad that I'm going back soon. <laughs> it is true that, yeah, Danes are much more forthcoming when provided with cake. Yes. I feel like that is. I feel like no one would argue with that. No. Um, okay. So um, so you talked a little bit about one of your papers. I, I guess I'd be curious to hear, you know, what are the kind of two or three things that you would really want people to take away from your work? So what are the, the kind of two or three main findings that you feel like are central?
1: Uh, so uh, not looking at any one specific paper, I think... Um, I think one thing that I would like people to know is just how common contact with the criminal justice system is and just how common it is for that system to reach into people's lives and into families' lives. Um, we have a tendency, or at least, I don't know how it is in the States specifically, but but in the Scandinavian countries, we have a tendency to view um, sort of people who 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 get in, in contact with the criminal justice system is an extremely selective uh, and very small group. But if you take my birth cohort, 1980, and take all the men that are born that year, and you uh, track uh, their criminal justice contact up to age 30, more than one in three is going to have contact with the criminal justice system. And this is in a country that considers itself very lenient, right? So, I mean, for any social phenomena that concerns... One out of three of the male population, that's not I mean, that's not small. That's not insignificant. That is a very substantial, um, systemic uh, type of contact that, that, that people have. So I would like people to understand that this is a more, more common thing that they tend to think. And so the other thing that sort of strikes me as, as, as very important here is something I've been doing a lot of research on over the years is the connection between immigration and crime. So this is something that seemed to have grown in, um, I won't say popularity, but interests in the United States o- over the past few years. Uh, but it's a debate that's been going on in Europe for like, I don't know, since since the 1990s the or something like that. Something like that. Um, and uh, here, I think, you know, you have sort of the division between public opinion and then sort of more solid kind of knowledge that needs, that, that I would like to see aligned uh, better. So if you if you compare uh, sort of a, the average immigrant or refugee, uh, that person's uh, conviction risk to the uh, just a randomly selected one to a randomly selected native Dane, for example, well, you're going to observe huge differences between their crime rates. But you know, maybe that's not the observation we want to make policies based on, because there are so many demographic and social differences mm-hmm. between these people mm-hmm. that essentially you have to ask yourself: Is this comparison fair? Um, and so, so once you start taking more like demographic and and social differences into account, you, you can sort of start chugging away this overrepresentation in, in in crime, as we call it, and end up at sort of explaining away most of the differences, uh, which gives you cues as to where you might, as a policy maker, want to um, address this issue. But so this even you know feeds into sort of an m- even broader question that I think is very important for people out there to to sort of appreciate, and that's the question of comparability. So is this comparison fair? You can basically ask that about any implicit comparison that people are making whenever they are sort of viewing social phenomena. Uh, I think that's, having the data that we have too makes it very clear to me that we have the obligation and the opportunity to, to ask that question whenever we are sort of basing judgments on what we observe when we look out the window. Cool.
0: Okay, yeah. that's great. That is. So I have I have one more question and I, I feel like I should have read my contract at Rockwell well enough to know the answer <laughs> to this question about whether you can answer what I'm going to ask you or not. I know that we have to be careful in terms of what we say about policy. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it, if we are allowed to say, um, I, it would be interesting to hear you, Talk about what criminal justice policy policy shocks or or changes you'd like to see in Denmark, and then also, you know, maybe what you think the Danish experience can teach the U.S. in terms of criminal justice changes that could be, you know, um, good for incarceration rates, good for crime rates, and also good for sort of communities more broadly. So one of those two things I'm sure you can talk about because it <laughs> is about the U.S. context, but the other yeah. one, the other one, I'm not sure.
1: No, so I can talk about it from uh, from like from my perspective at least, like from a personal opinion and not not associated with the foundation. Okay, so last some so dude now, this on is the ours, street. Yeah, yeah, yeah this okay. is Lars uh, talking. No, so I I think I think what our research. Uh, shows is that if you think carefully about the policies that you're doing and the policies that you're making, um, maybe even thinking about not having just one perimeter of of success that you're measuring on and these sorts of things, you sort of get the picture that that, um, uh, there are a bunch of ways in which you can sort of uphold punishment as a social phenomenon and all the positive things that are associated with that, like retaliation and these sorts of things, but still, um, minimizing the harm that you're doing to people. Uh, I'm talking about the additional harm than the formal punishment, so all the extra legal punishments that are happening to people. Um, and I think so. Some of the research I've done has focused on young offenders, for example. And so if you if you look at um, young violent guys, um, and then you look at at use policy reforms to analyze the effects of uh, exactly the timing of their first imprisonment, so mm-hmm. the age when the first imprisonment occurs. And what you see is that, that incarcerating young guys at even a, just a, a slightly younger age for the first time leads to sort of a range of, of poor outcomes. It leads to more criminal recidivism, um, both in the sense that a higher share recidivates, but also more recidivism. So they commit more crimes, too. Um, and the same uh, young men also experience more contact with the criminal, uh, with, the, um, with the mental health care system. And so I think using that information to design po- sentencing policies that, where you sort of improve life chances instead of ruin them, would be a very good thing. If you could balance it with all the, like the social need for punishment. Hmm. Um, I think also more generally, you know, so, so, sort of, uh, I would urge policymakers to um, not focus on, as I said before, sort of one parameter of, of success, one parameter of specific interest when you're designing policies and when you're evaluating policies. Because a lot of the work we've been doing focuses on um, sort of looking at at sort of second order effects. So when you cut benefit levels to newly arrived refugees in half, instead of just asking the political or sort of the, the incentive-oriented uh, question, does that improve employment rates? Well, what we do is we look at does, it, what, what, what does it, how does it matter for families? So does it, uh, does it matter for crime? I said it does. Does it matter for kids' chances of doing well in school? I can tell you it does. Um, does it matter for the children's criminal activities once they grow up and cross out of the age of criminal responsibility and again it does these like very very important um, margins to look at and important margins that you know you could have taken those into account when you were designing the policies Uh, it wouldn't have hurt to do that at least so I, i guess sort of a maybe sort of a shout out to to just sort of more informed uh ways of doing policies in general um, and then you know, if if we look at the the U.S. angle on these things, and this is something we we always run into with editors and reviewers and those sorts of, 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 of things too, because it I mean, so it is a weird country, right? It's this uh, small homogenous uh, country way up north that um, that has this uh, very extensive welfare state and and uh, and like so. I think two thirds of our prison sentences are shorter than a year or even shorter than four months I think so it's it's um it's it's not like anything you have here, but I think like because we have so so what we do is we almost always rely on political reform designs when we're doing our research um because that that enables us to sort of claim that we're analyzing causal mechanisms mm-hmm. and you know so the Point estimates that we're observing in the Scandinavian countries, for example, might not transfer well to the United States because the distributions are just so much different. But that doesn't mean that the theoretical implications can't be applied to the U.S. context. I think the the uh, what you usually run into with 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 the review of what what you often run into with reviewers is that the burden of making that link is placed on the author. But you know, in 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 some ways, I think the burden of of uh, trying this home might as well be placed on the U.S. system because, I mean, you're the guys who don't have any data on this things. So, I mean, why wouldn't you listen to those who have? Yeah.
0: No, it's a good, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing, like whenever we, whenever we're going through that process, it does always kind of feel like we're showing you what data infrastructure you would need to test this well, We're showing you what some interesting policy shocks might be. And we're showing you how, when you have those two things together, you, you know, see this specific effect in this specific context. And it's never... Yeah, it always feels a bit like we're doing all the work for the United States ourselves. <laughs> um and so maybe that's a good place for us to <laughs> close this episode. But um last thanks for thanks for visiting Ithaca and thanks also for talking to me today. Thank you, Chris. For more information about translational research or the work of the Broadfond Brenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.